All right, I'm going to begin. Way, way back in the day when, when Robin and I were parenting little ones, one of the things we learned quickly, as many of you have, is the value of keeping instructions few and simple, trying to decide what areas to work on, that to encourage or discourage, to explain them clearly, and to repeat them often. The Apostle John is a wonderful example of that. John, who uh, uses the, the term beloved children, speaking to, to children, is a good example of one who says, little children, here is the love of God. Here is how God loves you. Here is who you are in Christ. Here then is how you ought to live. And he says it simply, and he says it often. John would focus in on a few key truths, boil them down, and and then repeat them. We saw that in 1 John. We've just been through the book of 1 John, and this morning we're gonna look at 2 John. We're gonna see that again. Next week, Pastor Stewart will lead us through 3 John, but 2 John is a, is a short letter. Only 3 John is shorter. Um, it would have been delivered as a letter on, on, on a single piece of papyrus, uh, it, but yet as short of a book as it is, there is a, a purpose in his writing, but there are two themes that he wants to repeat that we will see that will sound very familiar from 1 John. Those two themes were not the main reason he wrote 2 John. 2 and 3 John both touch on a particular issue that he first addressed in 1 John, and it was the issue of false teaching. We saw that a little bit in 1 John, some of the background to that and some of his teaching on that. And in the mid to late first century, as John is writing, John is teaching believers, early churches at that point in time, possess the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. They have testimonies, some oral, some written from the apostles, stories of the life of Jesus Christ. They have the ministry of the apostles and then the, the delegates, people like Timothy and Silas, those who were equipped under the apostles who went and, and taught. But most of what they received was preaching from itinerant preachers. It was those who came to them as apostles or delegates of apostles and who would speak to them, but they did not have the complete New Testament as we do. And so much of this instruction depends on traveling preachers. And so ministry during that era, and we've seen some of this already, really took testing, discerning, thinking about what it is that this, this minister has brought, this, this teacher has brought, and comparing it with what they had been handed down from Jesus and his apostles. First John 4.1 reminded us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false spirit prophets have gone out into the world. Stephanie alluded to this in her, in her testimony. You take what you hear and you examine it against what you know to be true, what, what you see in the word of God. And so that was the challenge for them is to, to take what they were hearing and compare it to what they had been taught about Jesus and the gospel. And so that becomes a key to guarding against false teachers. They needed to understand that it was neither mean nor critical to scrutinize the teaching of someone who claimed to be from God. And this is especially the case for John's audience. We've talked about this, that some of those false teachers were men who had been in their midst, men who had professed faith in Christ, who had gone out from their midst, leaving behind the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ in search of some kind of higher learning, some other kind of spiritual understanding. And now many of them were coming back and, and bringing their new understanding with them and teaching from out of it. 
And so what's addressed in 2nd and 3rd John is a very specific concern related to these false teachers, and it is the matter of hospitality. We are far removed from the Middle East in the first century, where in our minds, when you travel somewhere, you you get a motel or an Airbnb or, or something like that. There's plenty of places in which to stay, plenty of places to eat, and that was not the case at that point in time. Hospitality was an absolute necessity. Opening your home for these travelers, providing a place for them to sleep and providing food for them and also providing credibility to them. If, you're, if you opened your home, your standing in the community was basically imputed upon them as they stayed in your home. You were giving them some regard. Jesus gives us a glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 10. He sends out the 12 to go and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to go and tell them what you have seen me do. Jesus tells them, he instructs them to go and proclaim this. And Jesus says, when you enter a town or village, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. So he's sending them out with the knowledge that they are going to seek out those who would listen to this message, who would embrace this message and stay there because hospitality was so essential. And the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire by apostles and others going and teaching, going and staying in homes and proclaiming this truth. And so we're gonna see that, particularly the hospitality toward right teachers in 3 John, but here in 2 John, the main reason he writes is to warn against extending the same hospitality to false teachers. It is to give them warning about adding credibility to them, about giving them a, a warm place of comfort. And that's the focal point of this short letter. There are three imperative verbs in 2 John, three, three commands essentially, and they're all in that section, verses seven down through 10. They're, they're, the imperatives are in verse seven and then verse 10. But, but the interesting thing is as you read, and you'll see this as we go through 2 John, he buries the lead. He takes what is the main point for what he's writing and he puts it beneath his repetition of two other points that he is repeating again, that he has proclaimed before in his previous letter. As urgent as his warnings are about false teachers, they are still not the most important thing for John's audience to hear. Let me show you what I mean. Second John, let's read the greeting part. Second John verses one through three. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So you'll notice right away, unlike 1 John, 2nd and 3rd John both have that sound of, of a New Testament letter. They both have the greeting and then the body and then the closing sort of farewell section. Um, but even here, the greetings are, are tricky because right away we see this, the elder to the elect lady and her children, and that prompts the question of who is this? This is an, an anonymous author who's identifying himself as an elder written to someone who is called the elect lady and her children. We don't know why, John would have used the term elder. It's not unusual. Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 speaks of himself as being a co-elder. Um, and, and certainly the thing that we see, and I'm gonna wait just a second and not try to compete here. 
There we go. Lord, protect our uh, first responders and provide grace wherever they are headed right now. The, the thing that helps us with 2 John, first of all, is the similarity to 1 John. There's so much that he says in 1 John in terms of truth and love that's similar, that we see that similarity in authorship. Um, but also that term elder tells us that whoever wrote this is well known enough that he can say that, that he can simply refer to himself as the elder and those who received it would have known who he was. And so it certainly would argue for this being John in terms of the likeness to 1 John and also his role in the churches that would have been in the area around Ephesus. There's some discussion amongst commentators about who's this elect lady and her children. What does this mean? And certainly it's possible. Some would say that John is writing to a benevolent woman who is known for showing hospitality, that she is someone who has a home with which she provides care for teachers, and that's certainly a possibility. It's equally likely that John's reference here to this chosen lady and her children is an affectionate way of describing a church. It's speaking to a church and to its members, and I would tend to lean that way because of the nature of the letter and the fact that he uses plurals in, in talking about sort of a community when he says later on that, that, that um, a command we have had from the beginning, he seems to be writing to a community. So I would lean toward the idea that it's really a term of affection, of endearment uh, for this community of believers. In verses one through four, five times in those four verses, he mentions truth. So he's already leading us to what is the first point that he really wants to communicate, and that is this issue of truth. Of those references to truth, three of them are preceded by the, the truth. Not just truth in general, not just truth as an adverb, as in truly, but there is something about the truth. So in verse one, in fact, when he says, um, I love you in, in truth, uh, whom I love in truth, some would say, well, that, that could be an adverb. I, I love you truly. But he clearly goes on and, and emphasizes that it is, the, 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 the next reference is to the truth. There is something that joins us together. I love you because we have this, this commonality in terms of what we believe and what we hold together. We share this devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the, the starting point for 2 John is a Christian community that is bound together, not on feeling or emotion, but on the, on the ground of sound doctrine that they hold together. They are held together by a belief in a body of objective truth. And so regardless of preferences, personalities, upbringings, all the things that, that make us different from one another, what joins us must be a commitment to an historical body of truth about the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did. That's why Caitlin and Stephanie gave their testimonies just a few minutes ago. Uh, it, it, it's an opportunity to not only give glory to God, to the God who saved them, but also it is declaring the basis of their union with all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It is to say, I am, I am with you. I believe with you in this Jesus and in the gospel that saves. John says here in this opening that the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. He's, he's really trying to help them see the false teachers will come and go. There will always be this sort of influx of 
bad ideas, of false ideas that will sort of come and, and, and wane and, and, and some will get more popular than others. But this truth abides in you and it will always be with you. And this is what holds us together as a community of believers. Then his point really, what's really the first point in the body of the letter follows in verse four. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Believers are those who not only hold to a body of truth, but they walk in the truth. They live in the truth. The truth drives the way that they think and act. He says, I rejoice to see you walking in the truth. And the the qualifier there at the end of verse four is just as we were commanded by the Father. It's another point to, to show us that he's not talking about some generic truth. He's talking about that which has been revealed by God that which has been shown to us in the Father's commands, and you are walking in that truth. John Stott writes, God has not revealed his truth in such a way as to leave us free at our pleasure to believe or disbelieve it, to obey or disobey it. Revelation carries with it responsibility, and the clearer the revelation, the greater the responsibility to believe and obey it. We are called to be faithful to this truth, to not simply know it and affirm it, but to live it out and be changed by it, to walk in it. So our salvation is more than the the past tense act of a point in time in which I trusted Christ, but our salvation is an ongoing trust in Christ that's demonstrated in our walking by faith in him, growing more like Jesus, walking in the truth. There is a concern though in verse four, and you see it there, he says, some. Uh, I'm rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. The implication then is this is not the universal condition of the community to which he's writing. If some are walking in the truth, then presumably some are not. And it gets to the, the tragedy that underlies this whole letter, and that is there are these false teachers who are going out and and deceiving people and who are taking believers and leading them into error and that threat is real and should not be taken for granted. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have set your hope on his gospel, then continue to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Continue to learn his ways. Continue to meditate on scripture and ask his spirit to help you in understanding it. Depend on him. Rely on him for strength so that you can discern error and steer clear from it because as John says, some are walking in the truth. All right, verses five and six. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. That's the ask, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Love one another. How many times have we heard that in 1 John? Where he has emphasized that believing in Jesus Christ then is accompanied by loving brothers and sisters. And John says it again. And he even says, this is not a new commandment. I know that I'm repeating myself. But it is that important that you hear this that I'm willing to repeat myself. Because essentially what what John is saying, I know, I know you're hearing from these liars, these people who are telling you false ideas about Jesus, 
who are telling you wrong ideas about what it means to follow Jesus, who are who are dismissing loving brethren as being a mark of following Jesus. And I'm here to remind you of what you have believed from when Jesus saved you, and that is you are to love your brothers and sisters. Walk in truth and love one another. So as important as the purpose of this letter is in dealing with the issue of false teaching, John is not going to let his readers forget. Walk in truth, love one another. He does not want those to get overshadowed by simply some instruction about dealing with false teachers. Because walking in truth and loving one another are inseparable. And that's how he puts it here in this, in this description. He ties the love of others to the command of God and obedience to God. And so a love, a professed love that actually isn't marked by obedience to God or a sterile sort of obedience to rules that is not marked by love, neither one are biblical. The, the two are to go hand in hand that we would obey and love. It, it, to, to have loveless obedience is what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13 as being a, a clanging symbol, just making noise but not actually accomplishing anything. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give everything I have away and if I deliver up my body to be burned, in other words, if I suffer greatly in your place but have not love, I gain nothing. So loving one another necessarily means obeying God's commands. What I mean by that, that if I'm going to love you, I'm going to obey what scripture says about speaking the truth to you, about sharing with you, about grieving with you when you grieve, about rejoicing with you when you rejoice. We are not truly loving our brethren if we are disobeying the God in whose image they are made. As, as one writer puts it, John is reminding his readers that genuine love for God and others means living in the way God has designed us to live and relating to others according to God's moral standards. That, that's why the world's understanding of love is so distorted, because they don't understand what it is to love according to that which God has designed and to love people as those who are made in his image. So if I claim to love you, but I really am just treating you as an object to, to bring me some kind of pleasure, some kind of satisfaction, or if I say I love you, but I find you to be an obstacle that constantly seems to get in the way of, of my desires, my cravings, or if I say I love you and my serving of you is really because I get this great sense of satisfaction out of doing things for you, then I'm not loving you as God designed. I'm selfishly using you to achieve my own means, and that's not what biblical love is. All right, let's read on. 2 John verses 7 through 9, and here's now where he gets to the reason he wrote, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Here's the first imperative, watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Verse 7 starts with 4. John had just reminded us that God's people walk in truth and love one another, and he had said that those commands are inseparable. Then verse 7 starts with 4. Walk in the truth and love one another for or because, another reason, there are many deceivers. There are many who are going to try to deter you from doing that. 
the first part of the, the warning in John 7 is connecting back to you need to know and obey God's truth because the treachery of false teaching is real. There are many voices out there that are claiming to believe in God but are actually liars. They are actually wrong. They actually pose hazard to you. He says there in, in verse 7, many have gone out who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. There's two things at play there. One is the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in flesh, but by the fact of using the coming of Jesus Christ, we talked about this last week and throughout 1 John, when John says the coming of Jesus Christ, his point is to capture all that that means, that God, the Son, left heaven, took on flesh, lived a sinless life, gave himself on the cross to die in our place for our sins, and then rose victoriously from the dead so that he might defeat sin and death, and now calls us to follow him, to believe in him and follow him, to obey him, to fully trust in him. So when John speaks of the coming of Jesus, he says many are deceivers who do not proclaim that. They twist things. They say, well, okay, Jesus was just a man, or Jesus was um, a good guy, and, and Jesus' death on the cross was just an example of sacrifice, or Jesus was one on whom um, a, a spirit of goodness came at his baptism but left before his crucifixion. W whatever it might be, these teachings were deadly and deceptive and contrary to the truth, and he is warning them to reject these things. Verse 8 is this strong warning to believers. He says, watch yourself. First of the three imperatives in 1 John, guard yourself is another way to say it. Same word that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. He says, be on guard. He, he had been talking about false Christs, people who would proclaim themselves to be the Messiah, false prophets, those who would go out and say they spoke for God. And he says, be on guard. Watch yourself. Think back, last week, when we were in 1 John 5, one of the things he said about intercession, about praying, was if you see your, your brother or sister sinning, pray for them. So there's that, that sort of responsibility that extends that I'm looking to other believers in, in the sense of not trying to gossip about them, not trying to catch them, but trying to minister to them and praying for them when they're struggling with sin. Here, it is very much a you have a responsibility to guard your own heart. You have a responsibility to resist temptation. You must watch yourself. Verse eight, he speaks of these consequences and he relates them to losing something we have worked for. And that's an interesting statement in verse eight. Some here see John as speaking about rewards. We know that in heaven there are there are forms of rewards. Obviously, there's, there's nothing that surpasses the fact that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you will be with the Savior in heaven. That is the greatest reward, is to have eternal life. But there is some kind of experience that, that we see in, in terms of crowns that are discussed in the New Testament that seem to speak of some levels of rewards for stewardship and faithfulness. And so what is John talking about here? Is it rewards? I don't think so. I think he's talking about eternal life. And I, I think he makes that clear as we read on because what he's saying is he and others with him obeyed God and went out as missionaries and proclaimed the truth. They went out and they, they proclaimed faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ 
And, and these to whom he's writing professed faith in that gospel. But if they now turn away and toward false teaching, they will be denying the truth. It will be as if the, the work, the ministry, the, the labor that, that John has put forth goes unfulfilled because those to whom he has proclaimed the truth have instead turned away. It's really clear from verse nine that it's eternal life that's at stake because he says, essentially, those who run ahead, those who go beyond the gospel, this is the nature of the, especially the false teaching then and now, they, they, they usually don't say, this is false and it's a really dumb idea and it's not as good as your gospel. What they say is, I've got a better understanding of God. I, I've got a deeper understanding. I've got something that's, that even surpasses what you have. And that's what he's talking about here when he says those who run ahead and they, they go beyond the gospel, they go beyond the true teaching of Jesus Christ. And what it says here is they do not have God. It's eternal life that's the issue. This echoes back to 1 John chapter 2 when he said they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued, but they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. They went out because they, they decided the gospel wasn't enough and they wanted to find something else. And those who reject the truth about Jesus, even having once professed it, demonstrate that they were not believers to begin with. And so the nature of John's warning is watch yourself. Be on guard for what you're taking in. Be on guard for how you're relating to the truth because you were taught the truth about Jesus Christ. Don't betray that in search of something else that the world offers, something else that, that people say is better somehow than the gospel. Uh, watching yourself is more than just keeping your distance from false teachers. That could be an, an application we take from this. Well, okay, I just stay away from false teaching. Deception takes on all kinds of forms. It, it's easy to be deceived by dulling your own conscience to sin, to, to practicing sin that you, you somehow think is not a big deal. And I, I fall into this sin and I, I practice this sin and, and over time, uh, I know I'm not enslaved to it. And yet after a while, the sense of conviction is gone. The sense of remorse is gone and the sin just becomes that from which you flee for some escape, for some form of pleasure. Watch yourself against this deception. Deception can take the form of frequently justifying my own sinful attitudes in my heart. Fact is I, I may do the right thing, all the while bearing an internal grudge against this annoying coworker or this bothersome family member. I, I'm, I'm still nursing some kind of bitterness inside. Watch yourself against such deception that somehow allows that to fester and not bring about conviction or repentance. Deception can take the form of thinking you're doing just fine when your prayer life and your time of meditation in God's word is virtually non-existent. And yet you say, I, I still get to church. Watch yourselves. All of these are ways that we embrace false ideas, wrong ideas, and so his warning is to guard your heart. Let me read on, verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, talking about what he's taught about the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This really now is, is John getting to the heart of, of the letter. It is sort of the, the new ground of instruction for the church to say, 
I know that what's happening is that these people who once were friends now are coming back with false doctrine and you're struggling with how do I, how do I engage with them? How do I handle hospitality when they have no place to stay? What do I do? And so he's talking about handling these false itinerant teachers who are looking for a place to stay. One writer describes verses 10 and 11, I think wonderfully like this. They are directives from the battle zone that underscore the extreme danger the church is in when it not only tolerates, but actually invites into its ranks those whose teachings undermine traditional Christology. It's worth pointing out here, John's focus is on those who bring this kind of teaching. He's not saying that if someone is struggling with the gospel, someone who is in the midst of being deceived, trying to understand what's true and what's right, that you somehow just cut them off. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the one who is purposefully coming and saying, I have new teaching that is beyond what you have. And, and it's how to respond to that person who is coming and trying to bring an alternative description of truth. If one comes teaching lies about Jesus, they are not to receive our approval or our support. Their journey is not to be facilitated by believers in Jesus Christ. There are, there are differing views on, on how this sort of plays out. What does this actually look like in daily life? Is this, is this functionally more of a statement to local churches that they're not to sort of give a stamp of approval on false teaching? One of the things that, that, that we do as elders is, is we try to navigate what's being taught out there under the, the guise of Christianity and so that if people come and ask questions about a teacher or a book or something new that they're hearing, that, that we're able to respond to that. And so there's some who say, well, this is largely saying that the church should not sort of give them a stamp of approval. And others would say this forbids even private hospitality. I said it to you before, first century, showing hospitality was not just the act of a place to lay your head and a meal, but it was also giving standing to the person. It was also saying that whatever, whatever you see me as in the community, see this person as as well and giving them credibility. It's not all that different from saying you, you are the company that you keep. While, while some might say this is mainly a warning to churches because it seems so stern, if you will, I think verse 11 makes it clear that this extends even to issues of private hospitality. John's words are strong because this is difficult for believers because hospitality is to be a distinctive of who we are. We're called to be hospitable even to strangers, right? We, we as believers are called to, to show great hospitality, so it's tempting here to want to soften verses 10 and 11 and to say, well, this was John, this was the first century, they didn't have the the New Testament, all of the circumstances that went in, the church is still relatively young. There's this great threat. They don't have statements of faith. They don't have creeds that sort of formalize their understanding of doctrine. There's this past relations with these people that makes this especially dangerous. And so maybe John is just, this is just for then, just for, for that point in time. The thing we've got to remember is what John's writing about here is not some small sort of intramural debate. This isn't a question amongst believers about how the sequence of events goes in the end times or whether or not we should baptize by immersion or sprinkling or some, some other form. This isn't one of those kinds of debates. What's at stake here is who is Jesus and what did Jesus do? And so what's at stake here is eternal life. It is the very gospel itself. 
These are critical issues of salvation. And so yes, John's warning is serious. Believers of every generation are not to fellowship with those who teach a different gospel. We understand what fellowship is. It is coming together as community to serve, to care, to, 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 to love, to, to, to cry with, to laugh with. We are not to act as if there is not an enormous divide. We are not to try to bridge that sort of fellowship with one who is intentionally teaching that which is not consistent with the gospel. And, and for most of us, the place where that probably crossed paths for us is when you get the, the ring at your door and you look and see the, the two guys with the white shirts and the ties and the name tags, or it's a group on a Saturday morning of Jehovah's Witness who have come around. Second John is not prohibiting you from engaging with them for the purpose of evangelizing them. The, the, the practical logic here is, are, are you mature in the faith, equipped in the word, and bold enough that you are going to speak truth? and not be that sort of willing audience, not somehow be complicit to what they're teaching. If, if you see it as an opportunity and you, have prayerfully, uh, you are prayerfully ready on that Saturday morning for the chance to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and to point out the error, this is not a prohibition against that. What it is is a prohibition against somehow giving the implication that, oh sure, we're all Christians. We all can get along. We, we all are, are fine and we can, we can have fellowship and conversation and break bread together. Not receiving those who bring false teaching. Application of that, just to think about for just a second. For most of us, that, that probably means, okay, I, if I settle in a good church that is consistent and preaches the word, and the elders are careful on these things, and I'm trusting the leadership to guard against false teaching, then, then I've sort of accomplished that. I'm not receiving false teaching. I, I would add to that this, that they, you know this, we've talked about it before, there is a relentless flow of information that comes your way every day from a culture that is decidedly anti-Christ, that is decidedly opposed to Christ and atonement and the gospel in every way, and you and I are besieged by that daily in the entertainment that we watch, in the podcasts that we listen to, in the advertisements that surround us, in the pressure of your workplace and its rules of guidelines that you are called to conform to, even if they are utterly godless and, and actually opposing that which is true. This is just a, a growing, steady stream of opposition that's only gonna get harder, for which we need to continuously ask God for grace and wisdom in order to face this increasing hatred of our Savior. The world loves a Jesus who is docile and tolerant. That's, that's the kind of Jesus they want, but the Jesus who declared himself to be the only way for anyone to be right with God and to have eternal life is hated. And you and I must understand that not receiving them also means not receiving that kind of pressure that says that if I believe this, I'm a bigot. Not receiving the kind of philosophies that the world is constantly wanting to throw at us. Walking in the truth, calling out teaching that is false is gonna take increasing boldness for you and for your children as you're equipping them as the world continues to move the way it does.
Closing remarks, and then I'll finish. I know some of you are, are even now questioning your seating spot and thinking how much longer, so I'll be done in just shortly here. Verses 12 and 13, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. It is so like John to finish with a statement of affection. I'd like to write more, but what I want more than that is to be with you. I want to see you face to face. I want to express my love for you in person. And it's a reminder, again, that, that these commands to watch ourselves and, and not receive false teachers, to be careful on our doctrine, to walk in the truth, should not overshadow our love for God and our love for brethren. There's still that desire for affection. And, and I'm gonna give you this last application of the book of 2 John, and it's this. I think it's possible to become vigilant fighters for the truth, to know your doctrine, to have your creed, to be prepared to take on anybody and anyone. It's possible to do that all without love. Church, doc, church history tells us what we know about John and it's given to us by a number of writers and it essentially says that around 70 AD, around the fall of Jerusalem, John heads to the area around Ephesus. And John is there for a number of years, both planting churches and helping to grow churches and he is serving there until ultimately the Roman Empire exiles him and when we get to him in the book of Revelation, he's exiled on the island of Patmos. But, but we know John had close ties with the believers in Ephesus. And so his instruction, his letters, his kinship was largely in that community of believers that surrounded Ephesus. And so they certainly would have been recipients of this instruction, of this teaching which is fascinating because when you get to the last book of the New Testament, not only is it the last in our Bibles, but chronologically, it, it would seem to be the last as well. It comes to us as the revelation of Jesus Christ is given through the Apostle John. And in chapters two and three are letters to seven churches. Jesus speaking directly to seven churches and the first one that he speaks to is the church in Ephesus. And he says this in Revelation two, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You read that verse and you go, look at that. They got it. They heard what John was saying. They couldn't bear with evil. They confronted it. They called out false apostles. And then what does he say next? You know this. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Here you are with these false teachings and this flood of worldly philosophy and you're willing to suffer for it. That's good. But I have this against you, said Jesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. By the late first century, the churches in the area of Ephesus, the Ephesian churches, had a reputation that even Jesus Christ commended as being some of the most doctrinally pure, understanding of truth, committed to what is true and fighting that which is false. They had a reputation for all this like, like hardly any other to the point that they were willing to endure hardship in order to oppose false teaching. 
And what does Jesus say? Unfortunately, at the same time, you have grown cold. You have grown cold in your zeal for passion for me. You have this zeal for truth and sound doctrine and fighting that which is evil, but your adoration of God, your love for brother and sister, where is that? You've grown to love knowledge and sound doctrine more than you love God or you love your brothers and sisters. That's why Jesus summarized God's law with two great commands, love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Because even as we engage against lies and deception and an evil culture that wants to push back and oppose Jesus Christ on every level, and we know that the enemy's attacks are fierce and false teaching will continue to appeal to the itching ears of, of people, we need to remember that Jesus Christ commanded us to love our brethren. Because he said in John chapter 13, the mark which will distinguish you to the world will not be the fact that you can recite the best creed, that you can fight off the enemy in the best way, nothing wrong with those things, but what did he say was the mark that would distinguish you? They will know you because you love one another, because you have love for one another. And, and I would say to you, brethren, that that's, that that's so appropriate for John to end us at that place with his affection for wanting to be with them, because he wants us to know the warning is real, false teaching serious, but brothers and sisters, walk in the truth and do so in love. Love your God and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 2 John. Thank you that in a short letter we are reminded again of your command to us to be a people marked, distinguished by love, by actively serving, by sacrificing, by caring, by speaking truth by weeping with those who weep, by coming alongside brothers and sisters, by reconciling disagreements. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for giving us a body of understanding that the truth about Jesus Christ, that, that we can rest our hope in who he is and what he's done. I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would find the balance in truth and in grace that we would continuously hold fast to that which is true and right and proclaim it clearly, but that we would always do so with the grace that we find in our Savior Jesus Christ, that we would always do so out of love for you, not out of a love to be right, not out of a love to win arguments, but because we love you more than anything when we want people to know who you are. Lord, may we love our brothers and sisters enough that we would go after those who are being led astray in such teaching, that we would love them and care for them and pull them back as good shepherds. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.